Good morning. It's great to be with you and have the opportunity to share this morning here at Central Vineyard. My name's Tammy. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you in the room and online. We are continuing with our series, The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is covered in the New Testament book of Matthew, and it's through chapters 5 to 7. It's one of Jesus's longest recorded teachings. It's some of the way it's the longest explanation of what it looks like to live as his followers and how we should live as his followers in a noticeably different way than other people. You know, we should hold a higher standard and have a higher conduct, the standard of love and selflessness that Jesus himself would embody when he died on the cross for our sins. So, a holy man was engaged in his morning meditation under a tree whose roots stretched out over the riverbank. During this meditation, he noticed that the river was rising and there was a scorpion caught in the roots of a tree. So he thought, I know, I'll crawl out and I'll reach that scorpion and I'll free him. And every time he tried to do this to reach out for the scorpion, the scorpion struck back at him. An observer came along and said to the holy man, don't you know that's a scorpion? And it's in the nature of a scorpion to want to sting. To which the holy man replied, that may well be, but it is my nature to save. And must I change my nature because the scorpion does not change its nature? Let us pray before we begin. Father God, just allow your presence this morning to just inject in us the words that you want us to hear, the things of you this morning that would penetrate our hearts and minds. Let those just be prevalent. Let all else fall away. Remind us of who you are, of your nature, and the things that we have received from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up this week in Matthew 5, and we're going to be reading from verses 43 to 48. The words should appear on the screen. Love for enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in this series so far, we've looked at this section in Matthew 5, and and there's some statements that all start with that similar phrase, you have heard that it is said. Jesus makes six of these statements here, but he's not talking about changing or abolishing the laws that were set before them. He's referring to parts of the law that have been added to, added by mouth, 
as the traditions would have been to transfer information orally from teacher to scholar. And each teacher would have added their own inflections or their own interpretations. You will find in the Bible many places where it says, love your neighbor, but there actually isn't anywhere where there's a command to hate your enemy. So Jesus was saying, come on, you've got to get this. You've got to understand what I was saying. This has been said, hate your enemy. But he's actually saying there isn't room for hating your enemy. You've got to love your enemy and to pray for those that persecute you. And the invitation from Jesus is that we step into a life that it's of radical love. Jesus is asking for the type of love that is going to mean we go all out, that we go above and beyond. What does Jesus even mean by love them? Does he just mean if someone hurts us, we ignore it and move on? Don't retaliate, as we learned last week. It goes deeper than that. The Greek language here actually comes out really well when it talks about love in this context. Because in English, we have like one word for love. And that's just love. And it means the same thing in all situations. And we probably have to give um, the rest of the sentence a bit of context to understand. But the Greeks, they had many words for love that meant different things. And the word used here is agape. And agape is a love that seeks nothing in return for the things you do. It's an overflowing love. It's where you see the cause of another person as higher than your own. You put someone else's needs before your own needs. It's something theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you begin to love on this level, it's a completely different experience. You begin to love people not because they're likable, but because God loves them. Because when you look at every person, even if that's the worst person you've ever met, you see that they're made in God's image. And because he loves them, you love them. To have agape love means you would refuse to do anything that would cause you to defeat or bring another person down in any way. A love like that almost seems impossible to replicate. And so, we have to kind of try and make an effort to think, well, how am I going to go about that? And honestly, I felt like I just did not want to deliver this sermon today. The title, Love Your Enemies. You know, I'm reading a lot about the radical love of Jesus and the love he had for everyone, including his enemies. And I was just like, Jesus, I can't deliver this. I just don't have it. And I'm not even sure I want it. <laughs> don't we like it sometimes just to like be mad at someone? But <laughs> and, you know, and this has been such a learning time for me, and I'm so far, far away from the teaching, and I guess it just revealed that to me. And my actual prayer this morning was, God help us all. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, I thought, well, there has to be some practical implications. And so I kind of tried to narrow it down to three maybe simple things that we could do but recognizing that it's actually not simple. Nothing about this subject is simple. But the first thing for me that I learned that I must do in order to be able to love my enemy and to love our enemies 
is to look at ourselves, to look at our own selves. And that might be a backward request, but I've come to learn that if I know myself, if I know who I am, if I know how I react in situations, if I know that certain things are going to upset me or trigger me, I can make a discovery about a situation I encounter about who I am in that. What part is me? What part is my enemy? Now, I'm aware of the fact that some people will not just like you. That's it. There's nothing you've done to them, but they just won't like you. And that, that's a sad fact. You may never know why, but they just won't like the way you walk. They won't like the way you dress. It just is that way. Some people won't like the way you talk or the things you have to say. Some people aren't going to like you because you can do your job better than them. Or worse, they can do their job better than you. Some people aren't going to like you because other people like you. And you're popular and quite nice. And so inside, they're just like, well, I'm not going to like you. Some people aren't going to like you because your hair's short, long, curly, straight. You'll never get it right. Some people aren't going to like you because your skin is the wrong color. It's too light. It's too dark. They're going to dislike you, not because of something you've done, but because of them, because of their jealous reactions and other psychological reactions and intentions that are just prevalent in human nature. And we don't know as people always the experiences of another human, another fellow, one that is made in God's image. We don't know what might upset or cause reaction for another person. But we can investigate when it happens to us, what is it? What am I uncovering about myself? Is there something in me of my reaction Mostly our nature to respond in these moments is always to blame another person. And maybe if you find yourself over and over again encountering the same or similar situations with similar outcomes, then it's probably a good time to investigate yourself. Are there some triggers for you? Are there some values that are being broken? Is there someone or something that's constantly trampling over your boundaries? It's so important to know yourself. In fact, just as Michelle said, there's an excellent moment coming up for you to step into this at Central Vineyard with the Equip Evenings running over July, the Discovering Wholeness. That's going to be a moment where you can focus on some of these areas such as identity, awareness, and of our character. I think that's right. You know, take that opportunity what else are you going to do for four Sunday evenings in July? Take the opportunity to further yourself. Know who you are. Because as you continue looking at yourself and we think about our enemies, we can, we can see that sometimes our people don't like us because we have done something to hurt them. It might be deep down hurt or surface level hurt. It might be historical or recent but there could be some attributes we possess. And we've used those attributes and it's hurt someone. It may be that you've not realized or you've forgotten about it or even in denial of it. 
but there's something that you may have done that will arouse that hate response within someone. And they see you as the enemy. That's why it's important to begin with ourselves. The second thing that I thought would be helpful to do in seeking to love our enemy is to discover the element of good in our enemy or elements. There is something within each of us, and each of us, we can almost cry out with the Apostle Paul. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. It's inherent in our nature, is it not? And we see ourselves as having this nature, but do we see others as having this nature? We can assume that every time we begin to maybe hate on another person or think about hating another person, surely we can come to think about, do they have good attributes? It is hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Can we discover good points about a person that outweigh bad points? The way I see it, we all have this personality that's, that's split in that way. We're divided against our very self in our own lives. We have this struggle with our heart and our mind, and they're at war. We cry like the Apostle Paul for the hope that our own misdeeds, our own unkindness doesn't come against us, but we cry for the misdeeds of others to go completely against them. It's in all of us. But how do we feel? How does it feel for us to know that we may be labeled someone's enemy, that we would be someone's struggle? It began to make me think, is this what it means when Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Isn't this how we walk around? Well, maybe it's just me, actually. <laughs> but, you know, isn't this how we walk around? It's within the best of us all. There's a little evil, and within the worst of us, there's some good. When we come to use this as our measure, maybe we take a step closer to having a different attitude towards our fellows, that a person who you feel there's hate with may have some good in them. And you may come to the point that you look in the face of your enemies or adversaries and see deep down within them what we call the image of God. You may be able to form a picture of love for them. That no matter what they do, you can visualize God's image there. And maybe that's a practice for you but actually only if it's safe to do so. I wouldn't recommend allowing someone to trample on your boundaries or putting yourself in harm's way to do that. You know, we have laws and we can call the police all for a really good reason. <laughs> I recommend it if you need to. But we can discover elements of good in our enemy. And as we seek even to hate them, can we seek God? for a different image of that person that we can place our attention on 
and we can put our hope in Jesus for, that we can pray for those that persecute us. Um, a little story. I have asked permission from my daughter to share this morning. But uh, my youngest daughter, Emma, was having a particularly difficult time at school with a teacher. Uh, she found him quite aggressive as a teacher, and it, it made her nervous to go to school. And so I just said to her one morning, right, we're going to pray about this. We're going to pray for your teacher every day. And her response was, yes, let's pray for him to be ill so he doesn't show up every day. Isn't that what we would do at work? <laughs> and I said, well, I think that Jesus might like us to pray something different. I think he might like us to pray uh, for your teacher to be at his best. That we would pray. So we ascertained when's he in a good mood. So let's pray that he's like he would be between two and three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. That he would be like that in always. Let's pray for his good so that if he's struggling, he'll succeed. I mean, I don't know what happened, but four weeks later, we got this letter to say he was never coming back. I'm not saying that that was because the prayer was outworked. <laughs> but there's, there's just a slight different tweak to how we were going to approach praying for that. Okay. So the third way you can learn to love your enemy is to not bring them down. When the opportunity presents itself to you to finally bring your enemy down, that is the time in which you should not do it. There may never come a time, but if there will come a time when that person who you feel is your enemy, this person who has hurt you the most, the person who has gossiped or slandered you the most, the person who has spread lies about you the most, the person who has ignored you or blanked you the most, the person who stole your promotion, or insert here the most relevant word that may come to you. There may come a time when you'll have an opportunity for revenge or for that person to receive their comeuppance. That's the time in which you should act. That's the time which you must do it. That's the time in which you must love them. The agape love. Not a love that is sentimental, something that we talk about. It's not even an emotional motive. It's an understanding and an act of goodwill for all people above ourselves. It's the refusal to bring another person down. And it's so difficult to think that we could even rise to that level of love. But actually that level of love has great beauty and power. It breaks the system of evil and hate. Very similar to the message that Thea brought us last week. And if you need to catch up on that, download the podcast. I recommend it. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. in, 19, in the 1950s, um, you know, he would give many sermons at different churches. And there was one that he gave at a church in Alabama. And he said this, 
It's not only necessary to know how to go about loving your enemies. I think the reason that we should love our enemies, and I think was at the very center of Jesus's thinking, is this, that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If you hit, if I hit you, and you hit me, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and go on and on, so we see, ad infinitum, it never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a little sense. And that would mean you're a strong person. A strong person is the person who can cut the chain of hate, the chain of evil. Because that is the tragedy of hate, that it never cuts it off. It only intensifies the existence of hate. Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. You see, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus gives us a stark reminder here. This is a tall order. This is not a statement that Jesus makes to hope that we'll get it a little bit. It's a reminder that not one person is better than the other, more favored than another. And we don't actually earn any more favors or chances in the kingdom when we love our enemies. There's no reward except that we get to do what he asks us to do. We get to bring to our enemies the proof that we are living in God's family, that there is a God who loves, that we as people can mature and grow and become more like Jesus. We, we are learning to have, love our enemies the way he loves and then we get to make these big action statements about whose children we are. We are born into God's family. You are children of God. We need to know ourselves. We need to check in on how we are doing with this. We need to understand the possibilities, even the tiniest possibilities of goodness in someone and the calling that we would not bring them down and crush them, but we would offer hope and prayer. And I know as adults, we can be childlike in our responses, just as in that prayer I shared. But it's a growth thing. It's a maturing thing. It's something we can learn. We just haven't matured yet. We're not there, but Jesus invites us to come on this journey. And now I'm going to share um, a story, so stick with me, um, of Corrie Ten Boom. Now, Corrie Ten Boom, for those that don't know, was uh, a Dutch Christian watchmaker. And, and during the Second World War, she and her family helped many Jews to escape the Nazis during the Holocaust. She believed she was doing God's will, and, but she was caught and arrested. The family were caught and arrested and sent 
to Rainsbrook concentration camp. And for those of you that, that know what happened there or not, I can tell you it wasn't a picnic. And she shares this story recalling meeting a man who had imprisoned her and her sister during the Second World War. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a bolding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in the bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I say, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stare back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and brown hat and the blue uniform, a visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy was her sister. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message for Arlene. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remember him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, 
but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew. The message that God forgives had a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you could not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a command of God, but a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. The matter, the physical scars, they healed. Those who nursed bitterness and remained with that became invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness and emotion I knew. Not to be an emotion, sorry. It's not an emotion. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intently as I did then. And that was Corrie Ten Boom writing on, I'm still learning to forgive. And as she said, we get to choose. Uh, we could choose, unlike the holy man in the story, that we change our nature to suit the offender. You hurt me, so I'll hurt you. I'll leave you to drown. Or we can pursue the maturity of Christ and who God says we are. We could not change our nature just as the scorpion doesn't change his. Or like Corrie, we can accept that we place our hand out even so woodenly with everything we can muster that we would see what God would want to do. It's not easy because so often we face situations and it's so hurtful and it may make us respond terribly. And we get to choose if we continue the process of hate upon hate or if we intercede. And I know it's hard because literally I had to get out of bed this morning and every day and participate in the world. For some of us, that decision is even harder than others. But the choice is for us to make the nature of our actions. Do we choose 
that our actions are true to the person God is calling us to be? Or do we choose to go around oblivious to who we are, the pain and destruction our attitudes can leave? We can ignore that there must be good in someone and make it our aim to bring them down because it just seems so much easier and convenient. But then do we get to write great stories? Do we get to make big, bold statements about who God is and whose family we are part of? People in our world see it. If you make that statement, everyone is watching, even if you don't realize it. You know, literally, I've had a couple of moments in my life. I'd met someone and, you know, I became friends with this person. I told them who I was and and what I believed. And it wasn't until maybe two years later that person said to me, oh, I remember you told me this and how you, how you deal with things and what you look at. And this was two years later. They said, oh, I, I just want you to know I actually believe that you are a Christian because I've seen you respond. I didn't know they were watching me. I didn't ask them to keep a tab on me for two years, but it took them that long to say, oh, yeah, by the way. And then even recently, you know, during this period of, of lockdown, you know, a family member saying to me, talking to me about something, and, and they said to me, what I don't understand is, is I know you, and I know this other person who would profess to be a Christian. I don't understand, God, because you try and speak to me about the best for someone, but they're always really angry. So is God angry, or is he not angry? Who's got it right? You know, and what difficult predicament to be in, you know, as someone in the world who wants to understand and they have so many views and pictures of who God is. We get to be the statement makers. So let us stand this morning as we invite God to come. The band are going to come. And I'll just pray as we end.